Hello, and welcome to episode 29 of the Boomy Brats Podcast. I am Carter, and joining me, as always, is Jonathan. How are you doing, Jonathan? I'm doing well, and uh, you went to a festival, and it's funny that I think maybe our two top films that we were looking forward to the rest of the year. I saw The Irishman at the New York Film Festival, and you just saw Malik's new film, A Hidden Life, at, uh, is it just called the Virginia Film Festival? Yes, the Virginia Film Festival, hosted by the University of Virginia in beautiful Charlottesville, Virginia. It is a nice little drive for me to get out there, but very much worth seeing uh, stuff on offer, like Terrence Malick's new movie, which will not, I think, be opening wide for another two months. And with these sort of, like, special art house movie releases, it's like, you know, a mystery whether it will be released in these sorts of markets at all before it comes out on home video. So it was a real treat to be able to see that uh, much earlier than I anticipated and was very much blown away by the final product. But, yeah, while I was very much jealous you got to see The Irishman two months before, I will. You get to stew in your jealousy that I got to see the new Terrence Malick movie two months before you will. Uh, but aside from all the but festival stuff... Malik didn't show up, right? No, he didn't. That would have been great. <laughs> he probably didn't even show up at the world premiere, though. He's, uh, just no, he actually did show up at Cannes. Really? Wow. Oh, my God. That yeah. must have been a real special uh, occasion for all the people. Because I don't even know if he showed up uh, when he won the Palm d'Or for Free of Life in 2009. Maybe he did. I mean, I can, like, count on, like, one hand the number of times he's made a public appearance. Like, there was one where it was him and Werner Herzog at a theater in L.A. or something. I think that Jeez. he was scheduled for that. And then I was so I was so uh, upset that, that he was uh, had an appearance at a library in New Jersey while I was living in New York City. But by the time I heard about it, it was uh, full. I totally would have ridden the train down to see Terrence Malick to New Jersey, but oh my God. Um, yeah, it's like he's, a pilgrimage, yeah, a sacred figure. <laughs> I know. Yeah, it's like he he did a talk with Richard Linklater and Michael Fassbender at the South by Southwest premiere of Song to Song. He showed up oh, at the wow. premiere of A Hidden Life. But I think like literally we've just mentioned everything he's made in a public. Well, yeah, South by Southwest. Uh, so, he doesn't have to go very far because he lives in Texas anyway. That's like the thing you can most count on him attending. Yeah. But, uh, but what's some movie news? before? Something news? that I had sort of forgotten about, but just some casting news about it came up. The Aaron Sorkin directorial debut, the in-production Chicago 7 movie, just added William He Hurt. directed Molly's what, what What were you going to say? Molly's Game? Oh, yeah, he did direct that. You're right. So this is his yeah. second. I didn't see Molly's Game, so I'm not going to count that. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, William Hurt and Michael Keaton are joining the cast, which already includes Eddie Redmayne, Sasha Baron Cohen, Mark Rylance, and Joseph Gordon-Levitt. I'm excited about this. I don't know too much about the Chicago riots of the 1968 Democratic Convention, which I probably should as a pretty seminal event in uh, American history, but a very good movie was made out of it, a sort of experimental docudrama, Medium Cool uh which was directed by uh man who's the cinematographer Axel Wessler yeah Haskell Wessler so, and stars the late Robert Forster exactly yeah nice connection into some other movie news but uh so yeah well, I mean what are sort of your what have you read about this are you excited about this do you know more about the Chicago 7 than I do 
And no, but um, Aaron Sorkin is one of those people like David Mamet. I don't think he's as good as David Mamet, but he has a certain rhythm to his dialogue. And it doesn't bother me that people don't actually talk like that. It's like you say, it's how you wish people talked because it's, yes. it's just this musical quality to it. And um, I mean, people hate watch the TV show, The Newsroom, but there was so much good about that show, um, even though it could be irritating and full of itself at times. But I thought Molly's Game was a pretty good film. Um, and uh, I think definitely The Social Network is brilliant. What do you think about uh, uh, the Steve Jobs movie that he wrote and uh, was directed by Danny Boyle? Because I'm a big fan of that, but it was not as well received as I hoped it was. Yeah, it's pretty good. Um, I, uh, I, I just was thinking of this when you're going through the cast. You know who one of the most boring actors working today is? Is Eddie Redmayne. Like every time he's in a movie, <laughs> you just go Oscar bait, the yes. Danish girl, and he's doing a, like a balloon film, yes. uh, you know, about like hot air balloons. It's just like anytime he's in, like I'm surprised he's not in, you know, Cats. He was in the previous <laughs> Tom Hooper film, but uh, he no, needs that's to a do call. like a large von Trier film and get fucked up. Oh, I yeah. mean, just Doesn't like anything. To, like, there's certain. Actors well, even beyond that, it would be nice for him to do a movie where maybe even he spoofed this sort of uh, a, like prestige drama streak that he's been on ever since uh, he won the Oscar for the Stephen Hawking movie, which was a travesty that he even yeah. won that Oscar over Michael Keaton, who's now joining him in the Chicago 7 movie. I hope that uh, Michael Keaton spikes his drinks on set with something to get revenge for that. But, uh, but yeah, Eddie Redmayne, for sure, well, and also, is just... Uh, yeah, like, he should be in a movie like Traffic Thunder that's, like, spoofing actors, Yeah, exactly. You know? yeah. Every every he, movie he makes, not, exactly I think he's actor. thinking about his next potential nomination. <laughs> that very much is a good call, that he, yeah. he, he should have been in the Cats movie because it's so self-important and, uh, you know, wishing that it was a prestige sort of, sort of drama. He needs to be like in a Todd Solondz movie where he's like very serious, but it's funny. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I mean, it's anything that stretches this this persona he's built for himself. But yeah, <laughs> we're getting yeah, off on I a mean, bit of a he, tangent a really, on Eddie Redmayne. <laughs> well, I was going to say that he's he's totally ridiculous in Jupiter Ascending, but it's fun uh, yeah. to see him in such a nutty movie. And that was yeah, like just film, before but... he won the Oscar. So... If he would return yeah, to something was, like that post Oscar, well, it, there's like the torn norbiting your career. There was a thought that he might, you know, because of Jupiter ascending, if you have a really bad film that opens early in the year around the time you're going to possibly win an Oscar, people thought that Eddie Murphy lost his Oscar for Dreamgirls because he was in Norbit, oh, yeah. and uh, I don't think that really affects it most of the time. I think. By the time you get close to the Oscars, like people are pretty much set. And I don't think a bad movie m- makes people not want to vote for you. But um, I I do want to mention a bit of uh, movie news that I'm real excited about since I love Sam Raimi, who just turned 60 uh, a few days ago, and he is going to be directing a horror film uh, that this part doesn't make me so excited. It's by the people that wrote Freddy vs. Jason in the uh-huh. 2009 Friday the 13th, but. Uh, there's not much said about the film at all, except that someone has described it as misery meets castaway. And uh, Raimi has not directed a film since Oz the Great and Powerful, which was, was a number of years ago. So it's going to be like eight years or so until he has a new movie. He's he's one of those that like every so often 
there's news that he's going to do a movie and then it doesn't seem to happen. Like I heard for a while, he's going to do a remake of the great French uh, prison film, a prophet. Oh, um, wow. I don't know if that's still happening. And he, and I mean, he produces a lot of things. He's produced the um, killer uh, alligator movie crawl. Uh-huh. And um, you know, he does a lot of producing, but I, I, I well, the evil dead I, remake. I he was a producer of that. Right, yeah. I he I want a horror movie by him at least every five years. Like I need that, and well, at least just a movie by him. It's been forever. Ever since Spider Man, he's sort of been prone to just being. I, I mean, Eyes of Great and Powerful is the perfect example of him being a sort of Gore Verbinski type, big budget studio director. Uh, the Drag Me to Hell, I think, was the last horror movie he made. So it'd be nice to see him. <laughs> make something a little more original than uh, us great and powerful yeah i i adore drag me to hell that is one of my favorite horror films ever and i think it's the best pg-13 horror film ever it's just so it's very weird wonderful and <laughs> yeah i want to see him do one of those like at least every five years just do a fun horror movie that's just him just completely going and doing exactly what he wants. And I mean, I don't care if he does stuff like Spider-Man and Oz. I mean, I still stand by that Spider-Man 2 is the best comic book film ever made. Mm. But uh, I'm definitely intrigued that he's going back into horror, even though it's by the guys who wrote Freddy vs. Jason, which is a not good film. When well, probably his original approach to horror, in contrast to like the Ari Asters, who are making these very serious uh, prestige-type horror dramas... It'd be nice to get a sort of in-on-the-joke horror movie, which Sam Raimi has given us in the past. Right. He does a very good job of making films that are joyously fun but sincere. Like, Drag Me to Hell is, like, goofy, and it's like Looney Tunes and the Three Stooges, but it's, like, <laughs> completely <clears throat> committed. You know, it's, it, 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 it's like, it takes itself seriously enough, but it's just wonderfully bonkers. Yeah, I adore that movie. That That's a good film to see for Halloween if you've never seen Drag Me to Hell. Oh, yeah. From, I think, like eight or nine years ago. But it, my... Ten years ago. Oh, wow. How about that? Anniversary probably here. But maybe one of my favorite working directors, Taika Waititi, who is uh, going to have the controversial Jojo Rabbit, hopefully, that we are both going to see in the next couple weeks. And we'll uh, talk about it for the uh, maybe on the next uh, couple podcasts. But he uh, has announced to the world that he is still on schedule to direct the Akira live-action adaptation. Have you seen this, uh, This the original manga, Akira? I've seen the original animated film. So... Have you known you've known that this has been in development for a really long time, right? There's been like a lot of different directors attached to it. Yeah, I just don't understand. Are you interested I mean, in seeing I'm not against... a live action Akira? Or are you against just the the sort of remakes like uh we got Alita Battle Angel, Alita Battle Angel last year, which was a very weird sort of movie. I don't expect Akira to was be like that. Was that based on the source material? Yeah, it was one James Cameron has been trying to make for a long time. I don't know if it was a anime like Akira is, but it was well, definitely it a manga. Was, uh... Yes, the Scarlett Johansson yeah. one with uh, Luke Besson. Or no, that was Lucy. Yeah. <laughs> Those came out really close yeah. to each other. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, no, I mean, it, it, I, there's... N- I mean, they're franchises that I'm intrigued by there being more of or, you know, but I don't I don't care. This is like 
who who is this for? Who wants a live action remake of that? Like I don't. More than I, anything, no, I, I just care. want another so, Taika Waititi movie. He's got the soccer comedy with Michael Fassbender coming out next on his slate, and then the Thor sequel titled Love and Thunder. And I'm expecting a lot from Jojo Rabbit. That might be my like highest expectations, uh, besides The Irishman on movies I have not seen coming out this year. So, I, it's an, I think it's going to be a very good combination of material and director. And it's not the, the worst thing people get but, to be rebooting. <laughs> yeah, but... Like he just seems such an odd choice because like that yeah. movie is like very violent, very gritty. Like, yeah. Why him? I don't yeah. know. Because I, I mean, not that he, I think he could like expand that. his talents. We don't we don't know what Taika and TT can offer us. <laughs> yeah, but uh, yeah, I'm uh, I, I'm uh, intrigued by Jojo Rabbit, but the very you know the mixed reviews intrigue me. But I've heard people really don't like that movie. Some people like I have a Ooh. friend who gave it zero stars and said like, oh, wow. this is like one of the worst films of the year. Oh wow! Yeah, <laughs> I cannot even really imagine it, so. thinking about it like that. I think I'm gonna really gonna like it. But yeah, that I mean that just makes the the expectation for it even higher. Just knowing that someone could give it zero stars and hate it that much. It really makes me want to see what it actually ends up being. But moving on from the movie news to a very recent Netflix release. Just released on Netflix October 18th, uh, a couple weeks ago. The Laundromat, the newest movie from Steven Soderbergh. And his second Netflix release of this year after High Flying Bird. uh, Starring Meryl Streep, Gary Oldman, and Antonio Banderas. It is... An idiosyncratic dark comedy about the Panama Paper leaks from 2015 premiered September 1st at the Venice Film Festival. A Metacritic score of 57 and a Rotten Tomatoes score of 41. Very, very low. Uh, And after seeing this movie, I'm sort of surprised at how low they are because I really love this movie. It was the sort of movie that someone only like Steven Soderbergh could make in that it was very knowing and very meta, but also very funny and very watchable. And it was, it wasn't too into itself. And like most Steven Soderbergh movies, uh, while also being very psychologically complex and offering a lot of different sort of points of view, is very funny and very watchable. Uh, <laughs> did you like it as much as I did, or did you agree with the critics who seem to be more down on this movie? I don't know if I liked it as much as you. I think it's a minor film of his, but Soderbergh is one of the most intelligent filmmakers we have. And I remember a few years ago, uh, about a decade ago, after doing Che, he kind of made a statement that, well, he said he was going to retire, and then he's come back and done like <laughs> a half a dozen movies since then. But he also said that he's not going to make any more serious films mm-hmm. and that he's going to make genre movies and he's going to have fun making movies. So he takes his very serious subject and makes this playful, you know, pretty cynical movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I, I think it is a minor film. And, and um, in a weird yeah. way, I saw it right around the same time. I saw the Japanese zombie comedy, One Cut of the Dead. And those two films, because of the way they're structured and told, there is kind of a 
it, it, it's unsatisfactory in a way, but but the way the film is told is part of what makes it interesting. And Certainly. I, you know, it, it goes off on these tangents. Yeah, like Meryl Streep isn't in like almost half the movie. Like it leaves her for these stretches, and I, th those aren't bad stretches. But it's just a film that. It, you know, it, it, the film is almost like a Ponzi scheme. It's like it's messing with the audience. And then the, the reveal at the end, which we won't give away, there's this kind of breaking the fourth wall that's very uh, funny and kind of... And very sly it, and it, something I really did not see coming. Yeah, it, it's, uh, it rises... It, it, it takes a pretty good film and notches... You know, it makes it go up a few notches, I think. Mm -hmm. I'd like give it like three and a half out of five. Like it's, 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 it's not one of his best films, but to me, some of Soderbergh's lesser films are still highly intelligent and very entertaining. And he's just someone that you watch the way his films are shot and the way he constructs his film and the actors he gets. And you're just, you, you, you feel like you're in the hands of someone who really takes film seriously, even while they're having a lot of fun. Yeah, I can see how you could say it feels like a minor film because it doesn't seem like one he gave too much thought to or like, you know, was like, I need to execute this perfectly. Why would I say that? Well, no, I mean, compared to something like Traffic, which I saw the other day, and when you're watching Traffic, you're like, wow, this Steven Soderbergh wanted to make a masterpiece and he made a masterpiece. I don't think he went into the laundromat being like, you know, this is my Traffic because he's already done stuff like that as you said he's sort of past that stage of his career but when you're watching a steven like, soderbergh movie you're like i'm watching one of the best filmmakers working today and even something that feels yeah. like a trifle in his total filmography compared to something like sex lies and videotape or traffic or trey which are these like really big idea driven like you know some of the best movies of the last 30 years but he can also make something like The Laundromat, which feels like a Coen Brothers movie and has a really eccentric Gary Oldman performance uh, that I really, really liked. And one of the better Antonio Banderas performances I've seen in a long time. Uh, he's got Pain and Glory, obviously, coming out this year also, which you have seen, which uh, probably compared to this is on a different sort of level. But I hadn't seen either Gary Oldman or Antonio Banderas like this in a movie in a long time. They play the uh, two partners, I guess you'd say, the guys whose name is on the building for this really massive uh, law firm that's handling a lot of these offshore sort of accounts. For those who don't know, the Panama Papers sort of scandal centers around the making of offshore accounts for all kinds of different millionaires, including like soccer players and prime ministers. And as they mentioned in the movie, Steven Soderbergh and the, the, the writer of the movie, um, Scott Z. Burns also have offshore uh, <laughs> accounts, which was very funny when they mentioned that in the movie, but in, it's not in itself illegal, but you know, there was very sort of manipulative practices. And a lot of the people who had these sort of off count, offshore accounts were criminals. And we have a, a couple really funny vignettes of the criminal activity uh, involving the people who had these offshore accounts. One really funny one with uh, a couple SNL guys, Chris Parnell and Will Forte. Uh, I, th I might be going around for a pretty long time, but I really liked it. It's very clever. And Steven Soderbergh is a master, and this isn't traffic, but 
it's much better than the yeah. average movie you will see this year. And it's on Netflix, so anybody with a Netflix subscription can watch it. I mean, I would think that if they were pitching the film, they would say, this film is similar to The Big Short. I'm I'm mm-hmm. pretty sure that probably <clears throat> came up in comparison. And um, it, it, I, there's things I like more about The Big Short, and there's things I like more about The Laundromat. Like, I... I feel like the the big short kind of has more heft and kind of tragedy. It was to more it, aggressive. But the laundromat, uh, yeah, and yeah, the, it Soderbergh's a better director than Adam McKay. Yeah, and that was something I noticed right. watching it. Uh, the big short is very. It's a really heavily edited movie. It's very flashy in the way it presents itself by going between this sort of different stuff. And the laundromat had so many like extended takes that would go on for minutes at a time that it just came in a much and it's smoother like 95 way. Minutes or something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like the movie might consist of like 30 shots. Uh, like a lot of it is like extended takes, which was really different in presentation to the big short. But in terms of the material and the direct address to camera, uh, it was really similar to the big short in those sort of ways. Well, Soderbergh is one of those directors that doesn't do many takes and he edits his own films often. And I mean, he's been known to have a film have its last day of shooting. And by the end of that night, he has a rough cut of the film on his laptop mm-hmm. a few hours later. Like he he's like when I say he churns out his films, not that he doesn't put effort into them, but he's just so efficient. I think is a good word. He's an efficient filmmaker. And Laundromat is just. Most people making movies do not make them the way Soderbergh does. Yeah. I mean, he's almost uh, methodical and and, uh, almost like Asperger's like in the way he makes movies, but they're, they're very intriguing often. I mean, I, I think that, you know, he worked with Antonio Banderas uh, before on the film Haywire. And he's just like, what if I get this uh, female fighter and I just, create an action film surrounding her. And he gets all these like giant movie stars like Channing Tatum and Michael Douglas and Michael Fassbender. Yeah. He gets the world's greatest actors. I mean, there's so many people that pop up in this movie. Sharon Stone does James Cromwell, Larry Wilmore. You know, there's a lot of interesting uh, faces that pop up sometimes. Matthias Schoenarts, David Schwimmer, Sharon Stone. I know. But uh, I actually saw this in a movie theater in New York, not at the festival, uh, but I saw it. Um, yeah, I mean, I say that every movie is better in a theater, but this is certainly one that would work on Netflix too. It doesn't demand you it know, almost you'd go out to a theater and see it. But feels like a TV show in that it's very episodic and even is sort of intentionally episodic and in giving you chapter titles and little interlude title screens for every time they switch up between their little vignettes. So in that way, it almost reminded me of the battle ballad of Buster Scruggs. And that it was almost purpose built for episodes, even though it was it was a narrative movie. Yeah. Well, I, I, one thing that with this renaissance or this, I don't know what number golden age this is supposed to be of television. I think one of the problems is there are things that have become miniseries that should have been a hundred, two hour, two hour and fifteen minute film. Like the perfect example to me is the assassination of Gianni Versace. Uh-huh. And like that was like eight hours long and it should have been a two hour movie. It was just 
way too long and too it's like there were three episodes where basically the same exact thing happened and so i'm glad the laundromat was not some six hour miniseries like it's it's fine at 95 minutes like it doesn't need to be you know it's brisk that's another word i used and 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 when i first uh, heard about the movie like steven soderbergh making a panama papers movie it in my head got confused with the report which was directed by the writer of this movie and is a very by-the-facts docudrama. And I expected this movie to be a sort of docudrama, and it could not have been further from that. So I'm very glad that Soderbergh took it the direction he did. Because, I mean, I don't want to, like, undersell just the, the idiosyncrasies of this movie. Like, it starts off with the two accountants, or two lawyers, Antonio Banderas and Gary Oldman, giving us, like, the definition of money. And, like, the progression of money from cavemen to the present day. And in that sequence, there's really funny in-joke sort of docudrama. Yeah, in one shot, where it goes from cavemen into, like, a bar. But I like the way that they blacked out the the eyes of the cavemen to give it this sort of docudrama authenticity. I thought that was really funny. Right. It's like in Woody Allen's Take the Money and Run when they interview uh, Allen's character's parents and... They're ashamed of their children's criminal records, so they wear the Groucho Marx glasses with the mustache. But yeah, I uh, yeah, it's it, it's I don't want to uh, oversell the movie because I think it's you know it's a pretty good movie, but it's definitely worth seeing. I mean, Soderbergh, like his worst movies are worth seeing because there's they're always interesting and intriguing, and he's a great filmmaker. So yeah, definitely see The Laundromat if it's not playing in a theater near you. Uh, Go uh, see it on Netflix, which it's on now. Yeah, I think it's a perfect Netflix sort of movie where it's not so artsy and into itself that you're going to turn it off after half an hour. But it's not so important as a Steven Soderbergh movie that like, you couldn't check your phone. One would prefer that you didn't do that. But no, 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 no. <laughs> you should never check but I think I think it's I, I think it's a perfect sort of Netflix movie, just like High Flying Bird was. I think Soderbergh more than a lot of directors is finding a sort of groove with the uh, the streaming movies. Uh, you know, whether or not that's a good thing is a different sort of argument. But I think Soderbergh is doing better than most directors with getting vital, important work onto streaming platforms. But from a Netflix director who is embracing the format to a Netflix director who is very new to the streaming world, Martin Scorsese. Uh, Jonathan has seen his most most recent movie, The Irishman. I have not, but he has brought himself into the news cycle with his recent comments about Marvel movies, uh, bringing the Martin Scorsese director cachet to a different sort of topic than we're used to him uh, bringing it to. Uh, Before we get into our top five Martin Scorsese movies, I consider Martin Scorsese to be the greatest living director of American cinema. How do you rank Martin Scorsese in terms of American filmmakers, you know, the last 50 years? For me, he's at the very top. Uh, How do you consider the legacy of Martin Scorsese? Well, I bow at the altar of David Lynch. David Lynch is my personal favorite living director. I'm not saying that David Lynch is a better director than Scorsese. Scorsese's without question in my top ten. Uh, but you know, it's it's hard to you know rank people and mm-hmm. how do you compare like 
Paul Thomas Anderson to Scorsese yeah. because they're you know he's you know thirty years younger. On the, you know it's like it's hard to. That's why I think it's like top one, and then like a lot of other people. For you, it's David Lynch. For me, it's Scorsese. And then there there are the lesser ones like the Paul Thomas Andersons and uh, Steven Soderbergh is definitely in that sort of category. And uh, you know, uh, would you say Paul Thomas Anderson's the best director of the group that had their first feature film in the nineties? Like Tarantino, like Quentin Soderberg. Tarantino, and uh, yeah, um, I mean some of these. I mean, he's. I mean, I think he's the best director. I think his but best just, movies like, I... are better than anyone else's best movies from that time. Like, specifically Magnolia and There Will Be Blood, which I think... And Boogie Nights, but, like, There Will Be Blood is unassailable. I think Punch Drunk too, but... Yeah. Yeah, uh, but I, um... Yeah, I mean, for me, it's a weird caveat that, like, I would say my second favorite filmmaker is Charlie Kaufman, but he's only directed two films, and I'm kind of cheating because I'm thinking of also the films he only wrote... Mm-hmm. But Synecdoche in New York is my favorite film of the previous decade and possibly of the century. So, like, it's like, you know, that it's a, ma- a massive boost. Uh, but uh, and he's also doing a Netflix film, uh, which is going to come out next year. But, uh, yeah, it's I mean, up there Dance for me, Cohen Brothers <laughs> and Woody Allen. Yeah, Lars von Trier. No, I mean, he's definitely, I mean, I, it's like I have a top, my top five would be David Lynch, Charlie Kaufman. Uh, the Coen brothers, Woody Allen and Paul Thomas Anderson, and then Scorsese would be somewhere six to 10, but it's like, who knows? I mean, it's hard to say, like, I mean, how do you compare someone who's only done two films versus someone who's, you know, in his mid seventies and had like 35 films, you know? And of those 35, we are going to do our top five definitive list, best five Ron Scorsese movies, or actually our five favorite. We don't want to say that there's the five best because I'm sure people would have some qualms with, with my list concerning whether or not they're the five best, but do you want to go first or do you want me to go first? I'll go first and I'll say that you have seen all of Martin Scorsese's feature narrative films and some of his music docs and uh, documentaries I'm just saying that I have not, I've, in, except for The Irishman, mm-hmm. uh, I've seen all of his feature narrative films except The Color of Money, Kundun, which is coming out on Blu-ray very, very soon. So I will be watching that and Bringing Out the Dead. Mm-hmm. Uh, so just, I have not seen every single one of his films, but I've seen almost all of them. I've also seen The Last Waltz and his most recent Bob Dylan documentary, but um, I'm going to do my number five and we'll work backwards. My number five is The Last Temptation of Christ. Ooh. Um, I, 1988. I think it's one of the be- the best Jesus films ever. I think it's one of the best religious films ever. Um, one of my favorite film professors at USC who uh, came from New Jersey said that people back home called it Marty's Jesus Picture. <laughs> and um, it, more than any film ever made, or at least that I've seen, it gets the duality of Christ of being divine, being the son of God and being human. Mm-hmm. It brilliantly dramatizes that internal struggle. And it's a really beautiful, powerful film. It's one that one thing that's really annoying is these Marvel geeks who go, oh, well, Scorsese just keeps making the f- same film over and over. He just yeah. makes these mob movies. No, half of his movies are like The Age of Innocence uh-huh. and Hugo and Alice Doesn't Live like, you know, 
he's he's done more films that are not you know about crime or mob people than he has about them i think i would say mm-hmm. but the last temptation of christ is a film that he actually and willem dafoe had bodyguards for about a year because people were so upset almost every single one had not actually seen the yes. film and i think most open-minded uh, Christians would find the film very moving. Yes. Uh, I think they just heard Jesus sex scene and they're like, oh my gosh. But it's in context. There's a sequence towards the end of the movie where he's on the cross and he imagines what if I didn't give myself, you know, if I didn't die. And he imagines of a life if he had lived. So um, I think it's one of Willem Dafoe's best performances. By the way, we can review this next time. The Lighthouse is definitely one of his best performances. <laughs> but. Uh, the he's one of the best Christ in film. Uh, yeah, I think it's a really, it's it's. I, I would say, it. I, I I can't speak for him, but I would say Scorsese might say it's his most personal film that he's ever made. No, I agree with that. It is certainly his most in, misunderstood movie. I for such a long time before I had seen it as someone who does a lot of internet research on movies and movie directors as a child. I had come across so much discussion and articles of The Last Temptation of Christ and how controversial it was upon its release. And, you know, people were threatening to burn down movie theaters because it was such a controversial movie about, you know, a lustful man like Jesus who, you know, has sex with Mary Magdalene and does all kinds of stuff. And when I ended up seeing it, I was like... So I wouldn't say like disappointed because I loved the movie and was really blown away by it. But uh, it was so underwhelming as a controversy because there is so little about it that's controversial. It literally is just like a, a dream sequence, which is made clear that it's not reality and is a sort of alternate history where he has a family that, like you said, anyone who was angry about it had to have not seen the movie because after seeing it, there's just no way you could be upset as a Christian person in its depiction of Jesus because it really is like all positive and is one of the more considerate and thoughtful uh, just meditations on the character of Jesus of Nazareth as the son of God and as uh, the Messiah of you know the Jewish religion and the basis of Christianity uh, much more than something even like the Passion of the Christ which is a very faithful adaptation of uh you know some of the books of the gospel but doesn't really consider the divinity of jesus or any sort of bigger uh you know questions of divinity it is just very much it's a, the jesus chainsaw massacre yeah it's a very fact-based portrayal of the passion of the christ which you know is in the title but is not really interesting as a religious movie while the last temptation of christ with the sort of fully man fully god portrayal of jesus gets this really it's it it is jesus as a character in such an interesting way and just thinking about the fully man fully god uh aspect of jesus i don't want to just keep rambling about this movie because it's one that you just like can think about a lot after you watch it but it really is fantastic and can be shunted to the side in the martin scorsese oeuvre but is certainly one of my favorites it did not make my top five uh, do you want me to, to go on to my top five and a real switch up from uh, The Last Temptation of Christ? I have The Departed Wolf from 2006. <laughs> the Wolf of Wall Street. It was literally between those two movies. And The Departed is a movie that gets a lot of shit. 
uh, because it is the movie that won Martin Scorsese his best director Oscar and everyone will say it's not his best movie it's not even his 10th best movie it's not even in his top half and I think people really take that too far and just shitting on The Departed because it's not Taxi Driver and what The Departed is might be the most entertaining Martin Scorsese movie it is certainly the one where he allows his actors to just have the most fun in their roles. I particularly think of Mark Wahlberg, who was just annihilating every scene partner he has in this movie and just whipping his dick out and slapping them across the face with his giant Boston accent. The only person the only person who actually got nominated for the film, which was kind of surprising. Yes. It's it's a movie that you can pick up on TV anytime and start watching. It's a movie I've probably seen more than any other Martin Scorsese movie. Uh, it came out when I was 14 years old, so hit me in that exact per- perfect prepubescent mindset to be revealed to this movie for the first time. And it just hits all the right marks for me. And even though it might not be the greatest Martin Scorsese movie, is easily in my top five personal favorite. Have you ever seen the original that it's based on? It's, I think, the only film to win Best Picture that's a remake. I have uh, Infernal Affairs. rented it, it, and I had it in Netflix for such a long time, but I just did not get around to seeing it because I was like, you know what? I, I don't even want to see it because if it's better than The Departed, it's going to ruin The Departed for me. No, it's. I mean, the, the, it's an example of the remake being even better. The original film's fine. It's a good film, certainly, but... Yeah, the depart. It's the thing of like when people say, "Oh, Casino's not as good as Goodfellas." Well, mm-hmm. The Departed is not one of. It's not in my top five Scorsese films, but it's just a hell of a good time. It's mm-hmm. so well done. It's a great cast. I mean, you have Leonardo DiCaprio, Matt Damon, Jack Nicholson, Mark Wahlberg, Martin Sheen, Alec Baldwin, uh, Vera Farmiga. I mean, there's so many good people in this movie, and it's you know it. It's it doesn't have the poetry and the um, kind of the well, especially compared to something it, like it, the Last Temptation not, it, of Christ, which is like one of the prime examples of Scorsese as like intellectual as filmmaking mastermind. The Departed, it, it's not like something only Scorsese could make. Yeah. Well, no, no, no. Many people could have made this film, but he does it better than anyone else could. I think. Like, like there's a dozen other directors that could have made this movie. He just did it as good as anyone could do. Yes. Yeah. I mean, Brian De Palma could have made this movie. No, I totally agree with that. And this will probably be uh, the the movie on both of our lists that most uh, audience members, most people listening to this will have seen. Uh, Either this or one that I think will make an appearance on both of our lists later on, Goodfellas. Well, I mean, I think people have seen The Wolf of Wall Street, too. Uh, That's not... uh, uh, But uh, should I go to my number four? Yes, please. Okay. um, It's probably in your top five. It's Taxi Driver. Mm. Um, We'll save my thoughts on that for later. It is in my top five. Okay. Yeah. The last time I watched this movie, I showed it to my mom, who had never seen it before. So it's like, it's almost like Sybil Shepard and Travis Bickle. You know, it's like, I, hey, mom, let's watch Taxi Driver. But yeah, it's. That's about as romantic to me as saying, it. let's fuck. <laughs> well, I mean, 
it, the movie is just it, it's almost hard to say anything else than what's already been said about it for you know over 40 years it's it's paul schrader uh wrote a brilliant script and scorsese just you know it it's it's scorsese and de niro at the height of their talent but pretty young you know they had done mean streets before uh and yeah it's still very powerful and disturbing um yeah i mean i I, i'm almost at a loss to add anything new to what people have said about it it's 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 uh it's a brilliant movie it's one of the best of the 70s it's it's ridiculous that looking back that paul schrader wasn't nominated for best screenplay and scorsese was not nominated for best director. Mm-hmm. That's crazy. Absolute, absolute travesty. We'll, we're, I'm gonna save yeah. my my thoughts about this for when I reveal it's uh it's ranking on my list because I have a feeling that I'm gonna go for a very long time. So that might be what we finish with. So I can chop down a good five or six minutes from the rant I go on. Uh, so my number four, uh, one of the. As you mentioned before, something that is so frequently thrown at Martin Scorsese is all he's capable of doing is making movies about violent men in a flashy, overstated sort of manner. My number four, and I think is the great testament to the versatility of Martin Scorsese as a filmmaker, The Age of Innocence from 1993, the adaptation of the American classic by Edith Wharton. It is one of the most sensitive uh and thoughtful and nuanced adaptations of a classic work of literature that you will ever find and still has some really fantastic flourishes in the scorsese style with some really he it's uh it's the one where i think uh some of his favorite filmmakers are, are michael powell and emmerich pressburger in a movie that they made that he reveres so much with the Red Shoes, one of my favorite movies. Such a big aspect of the filmmaking style of uh, Powell and Pressburger was just very bold use of color. And The Age of Innocence, with these sort of fades in and outs involving these brilliant, beautiful, bold yellows and reds uh, to reflect what is happening in the interiors of the characters we're seeing on screen. is It's one of the coolest things you'll see in a Scorsese movie. And it's so <laughs> different than the stuff you see in uh, Goodfellas and Casino and Taxi Driver that uh, it is just such a beautiful movie. And The Age of Innocence, 1993, I cannot recommend it higher enough. I was thinking of putting it higher on this list, but uh, the top three for me for Scorsese are so nailed on that this has the uh, revered place of number four on my list of top five Scorsese movies. I saw it for the first time at Film Forum when they had done a restoration and the co-screenwriter, I think his name is Jay Cox. Mm-hmm. Um, Who also it's one of the co-wrote that, Gangs of New York uh, with him and also Silence. <laughs> yeah, Scorsese has not written too many of his films, but uh, that's one of the ones he was uh, one of the screenwriters on. Mm-hmm. Also, yeah, it's a beautiful film. It uh, came out in the Criterion Collection a few years ago. Uh, Daniel Day-Lewis, Michelle Pfeiffer, Winona Ryder. Um, yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's, classic it, New York it's... movie. Uh, not in the same way that <laughs> The Taxi Driver and Goodfellas are, but is one of the more different and unique takes on post-Civil War New York that you will find. It is not exactly an era that has been committed to screen very often, and Scorsese gives a bit of a definitive take on it. 
right? I, um, I'm not surprised given your love of period pieces and <laughs> literary adaptations uh, that you put this in your top five. But uh, it's one of his I've only seen once, but I definitely was... Uh, it's one of his more moving films, yes. too. Sometimes the flash kind of takes over his films, and this one you really can... It's more subdued, and you, yes. you can kind of... You know, the, you know, the emotions are, you know, it, it, you're more emotionally moved by this film than some of his. Yes, a lot of a lot of scenes in it, especially the the ballroom sequences are, I wouldn't say lifted, but they are very uh, obvious homages to The Leopard, directed by Lucino Visconti, which is also one of my favorite right. uh, period pieces. So, and that has just an all-time classic, like, ball sequence at the end of its movie. And The Age of Innocence is one of the closest you will find in American cinema to capturing uh, the elegance that you will see in a Lucino Visconti movie. Yeah. Well, uh, I'll go on to my number three is The King of Comedy, mm. uh, which I would which I would argue might be Robert De Niro's best performance ever um, as Rupert Pupkin, this uh struggling stand-up comedian who desperately wants to be on uh jerry lewis's show jerry lewis plays his talk show host and uh don't see joker just go see the king of comedy it's a much much better film uh it's definitely one of jerry lewis's best performances mm-hmm. and sandra bernhardt's hilarious in supporting role she should have been nominated uh but yeah this is a film that i think even though he's done more overtly dark and violent movies this one i think is one of his darkest films it's a satire though and i think it was a little ahead of its time predicting the celebrity culture and the kind of narcissistic nasty obsession people have with celebrities and uh i remember that jerry lewis uh as actually happened to him and they put it in the movie one time he was on a um there was a woman on a phone and he really had to get somewhere and a woman said oh i'm such a big fan of yours oh i, I i'm talking to my son on the phone could you please say hello to him and he's like oh I'm, i thank you ma'am but i, I really have to get going and she, i hope you die of cancer <laughs> in a split second she slid it and that that's like a a, a a key scene to me in the film is how people's relationship to celebrity is very fickle and disturbing at times yeah i think it's a it's a brilliant film. It's a very uncomfortable movie. It's it's funny. It's definitely funny, but it's very uncomfortable. And it, it's like a really interesting companion piece with Taxi Driver. Yes, it is. Which is why I was interested. It was uh, higher than Taxi Driver on, on your list because they very much are of a piece together, being collaborations uh, between Scorsese and De Niro and involving uh, the sort of antisocial but <laughs> narcissistic and egoistic uh, male protagonist uh portrayed by robert de niro but it's one that i think a lot of people come late to for scorsese i would be shocked if for anyone this was the first scorsese movie that they saw for me i didn't see it until i took a uh retrospective class on scorsese in college where this was part of uh the like 15 or 16 movies that we watched and it's one when the first time you watch it, uh, it's got a really incredible opening sequence with Robert De Niro sort of ingratiating himself into uh, Jerry Lewis's uh, limousine at the beginning of the movie. And the opening credits takes place over this really distinct shot of a hand on a window. And when I first saw that for the first time, I was just like, oh, my God, this is amazing. I can't believe I've never seen this before, because in so many ways it felt so contemporary and fresh and ahead of its time. Uh, 
<laughs> and like Jonathan said, it has had a massive influence on a lot of movies that have come uh, out since then, especially The Joker, which is like a remake of that and Taxi Driver sort of combined. Uh, but very much ahead of its time in its uh, treatment of celebrity culture and uh, especially Jerry Lewis's performance in it is, I think, very much informed by his own personal experiences being a celebrity and just having everyone recognize you for such a long time. It's a very complex performance by, by Jerry Lewis in it because in so many scenes, he just seems like an asshole. But you like have to consider just how he's treated by so many people at all times that, of course, he'd be an asshole yeah. because anyone who comes up to him wants something from him that of course he would be distrustful of everyone and just snarky to be around. But because so much of it is from Robert De Niro, Rupert Pumpkin's point of view that you're like, oh man, can't this guy just be nice every once in a while? But you're like, oh wow, I forget sometimes Rupert Pumpkin is a psychopath and everything that he's asking for is completely out of the realms of like what he should be asking for. So in a lot of ways, it does a really good job of like getting you on the side of an absolutely insane person and sort of forgetting uh, the boundaries of that sort of stuff at times. Uh, really, really good Scorsese movie. One of the ones you come to late. That and After Hours are sort of the ones that you feel like uh, early 20s, mid-20s college student is like, oh, you want to know real Scorsese, the great Scorsese? Watch After Hours. Watch King of Comedy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's only made, what, like four films that you could consider comedies. Uh, the King of Comedy... After Hours, uh, The Wolf of Wall of Street. That's more just like a children's movie. Yeah. Though. Would you call Alice Doesn't Live Here anymore a romantic comedy drama? Or would it just be a drama that has funny parts? I don't know. I, I don't know. I think it's like proto-romantic comedy. If it were made today, I think it would very much be a romantic comedy. And there's just like two or three scenes that you could change in it that would uh, make it. But there's just some very raw stuff in that movie. That makes it, uh, yeah. in a lot of ways, it's just like a movie about real people with funny parts in it. So, yeah, I'd go with, like, drama with funny stuff more than romantic comedy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think Goodfellas is one of the funniest movies ever made, but mm -hmm. I wouldn't call it a comedy. Mm -hmm. yeah. It has some of the funniest scenes. But So, uh, uh, what's your number three? My number three... Uh, a movie that I remember it being released, uh, I did not see it until a good five or six years afterwards where I had had this sort of perception about it for a very long time being a boring, awards-grabbing, prestige sort of movie. My number three is The Aviator from the year 2004, uh, the second in the series of collaborations between Leonardo DiCaprio and Martin Scorsese a biopic of Howard Hughes and a movie which at times I think struggles with what it wants to be in so many parts. It's like a showbiz of the 1930s and forties, uh, like not a drama, but just a fun time seeing Catherine Hepburn swinging golf clubs. And at other times is a very weird, like, uh, just movie about someone with like serious uh, mental issues and very serious OCD. And it has a struggle sometimes getting a tone between these very two extremes of being really lighthearted and being a very close, uh, put you in the perspective of someone with a really serious mental condition. But in spite of that, 
Uh, it is a movie I find myself watching all the time. It is on like uh, Cinemax and stuff like that all the time also, so that helps. But it's a movie that uh, just when watching it, I just feel like a connection with the with Martin Scorsese because of his affinity with the times and just how selective he was with you know using the correct Technicolor from the time period when he's making it. So as you're watching the movie, it's also a history on like the use of color in cinema because as it goes from the late 20s to the early 50s, the color improves as the color grade Technicolor technology improves, and he was very specific about using. Uh, true two-period Technicolor technology throughout it. That's a real sort of nerdy uh, technical cinema side about why I love The Aviator. But more than anything, it is just an incredibly watchable biopic about a great figure in 20th century America who I think to a certain extent is being forgotten by passing generations. Howard Hughes is someone who, like in 1970, 1980, was considered like an American industrial pioneer on the same sort of... uh, footing as like you know ford or (laughs) like uh, thomas edison but i think now is sort of a forgotten figure of history and the aviator is just such a great slice of life of 20th century history it is done so vitally by martin scorsese that i cannot help but love the aviator for all of its flaws it's the first scorsese film i saw in a theater because it's one of his few PG-13 films. I saw it when I was kind of young. And um, yeah, I mean, in a way, the film, you know, wants to be like an old school biopic. It, mm-hmm. And like you said, it has this mix of wanting to be. It's like, it, it's almost like the a film that Howard Hughes would have produced himself <laughs> uh-huh. and then mixing it with this kind of disturbing Scorsese film about a guy who like washes his hands until his hands bleed yeah. and he's pissing in jars. And, you know, and <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's very watchable. I've only seen it once and it's been over, you know, it's been, you know, oh, wow. the year it came out is when I saw it. That's yeah. crazy. You got to I mean, watch well, this I mean, again. I have this thing. <laughs> yeah. Like 90, 95% of the movies I've seen in my life, I've only seen once. Wow. Like, I, uh, you know, I don't like, I, I don't like watching movies over, I never watch a movie over again, hardly, unless I'm showing it to someone. And I do that, I do that, but I don't, like, I don't, I, I like never watch a movie on my own, like, a repeated time. Like, I can't even think of the last time uh, I watched a movie on my own a second time, you know, multi, uh-huh. you know, after having seen it before. Anyway, yeah, David um yeah, it's it, and it's a great use of. It's probably the besides the Irishman with the CGI de aging. It's probably Scorsese's. You know, it's one of his most technically. You know, the, 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 well, that and Gangs in New York, like the mm-hmm. recreation in New York, but The Aviator certainly has. You know, some really impressive special effects, and there's mm-hmm. like set pieces with the plane crash is really incredible. Yes, I, this is I think sort of the height of Scorsese as like box office draw. Uh, this and uh, The Departed, which comes out two years uh, well, afterwards. Wall did a lot, right? It did do a lot, but I think that was more sold on DiCaprio than being a Scorsese movie. Yeah. I think, like, The Aviator, I remember so much about when it came out as, like, you know, big Scorsese movie. And that says a lot that I was, like, 12 years old when it came out, and I remember how much they were peddling, you know, this being a Scorsese movie. But that and The Departed, I think of as being... 
I don't know. Maybe it was just because I was alive during it. Obviously, if I was in the 70s and maybe when Goodfellas came out, that would have been bigger. Hey, Scorsese made a new movie. But for me, like those two, The Aviator and The Departed, are like, Scorsese's got a new movie out. Let's put all that we can into the marketing behind this. In a way that, that you didn't see for silence, I'll say. But I think maybe uh, <laughs> this new movie... Um, is is bring a little bit more. I could see. Scor- I think. I think Scorsese could very likely win Best Director for The Irishman. He's certainly wow. going to get nominated. I think he could, because uh, he's never. He's only won once, and The Departed is not this only should have won for. No. But uh, it's. I mean, I, I think that part. It's like with Paul Newman finally winning the Oscar for The Color of Money. It's yeah. like I think people are expecting that he would win for Gangs in New York. Oh, and then The Aviator. Oh, and he still doesn't win. Okay, we really got to give it to him <laughs> for The Departed. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean it's it's amazing how many times he's been nominated. He's uh, you know like eight or nine times. Uh, well, and especially considering, but it's crazy. Especially it's, those two movies in particular, Gangs of New York first. and uh, The Aviator. Considering 2002 Best Director, I'm pretty sure went to Rob Marshall for Chicago, and 2004 went to. Oh, kind of, I, and really, the, I don't uh, think he won. Okay, maybe it didn't. Maybe I'm wrong about that one. But either way, Chicago won like a lot of the awards that season. Ah, that's it, yeah. And then 2004, I'm pretty sure, was uh, Clint Eastwood for Million Dollar Baby, yeah. Which I think the Aviators won. Yeah, he deserved it more. Yes. No, no, no. Million Dollar Baby's a. But he had already won Front Forgiven. That's where you're just like, hey, maybe we shouldn't give all the awards to Clint Eastwood. But that's a different sort of topic. You do agree with me. You do agree that the only thing that should matter is if the film deserves it or not. It shouldn't be their political beliefs no, or their yeah, personal no. life or whether they won the year before, whether they've ever won before, no, if they won no. just the year before. It should totally, I totally be. Agree, yeah. 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 So, uh, yeah. So that he shouldn't have won for The Departed, not because it is a great film, but it's not one of the. It, 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 I'm sure whatever. I think Inland Empire came out that year. David Lynch should have won for that for my money. But. Um, anyway, uh, yeah, the aviator is the first one I saw in a theater. And I think that it is one of Leonardo DiCaprio's better performances because I know this is controversial, but I don't think Leonardo DiCaprio is a great actor. I don't, I, I wouldn't put him in the top 20 actors, uh, you know, He's working more of today. a movie uh, star than, I, a, than an actor. I'll give you that. But yeah, on the note of best, first Scorsese movie seen in theaters, no joke. I think it's Shutter Island. Because I remember very vividly trying to see The Departed in theaters and being turned away because I went with my older brother who was over 16. But apparently you can't buy a ticket for someone under 16 unless you're over 21. So he he was like, two tickets, and they gave him a ticket. And we're like, well, this isn't good. I'm trying to get two here. And they're like, well, you can only buy one. So I think Shutter Island was the first uh, Scorsese movie I saw in theaters. Well, that was um, the my trick was that my mom would buy the ticket for me and I would just go into the theater. Like I saw Grindhouse and Eastern Promises stuff like I really shouldn't have. Well, I don't know. I t- it's like when Grindhouse came out, I told my mom, Mom, I shouldn't see this film, but I have to see this film. So she uh, just bought the ticket and I would walk in with it. But um, so uh, am I going to do my number two now? You're number two. Yeah. Okay. Uh I actually just saw this for the second time ever in my life a few months ago in Florida, um, Raging Bull, mm. which you could argue is his best film. 
Uh, it's not my favorite of his, but it's just, I mean, a devastating the, movie. It, it, I mean, I, yeah, it's it's so. I mean, every aspect of it, the directing, the black and white cinematography, De Niro's performance, Joe Pesci, Kathy Moriarty. I mean, it's just, it's such a, it's, it, it's, it's surprising how moving the film is considering how horrible the character is. But the tragedy of it is you have this man who's incredibly talented, but basically all he knows is violence and being this brute. And it's about, you know, people like to use this term toxic masculinity, but that's like, you know, it's the king of films about toxic masculinity. And it's, yeah, it's such a, uh, I mean, this might be a, 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 um, you know, no pun intended. It's a bruising film. It's it, 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 you you feel like it it, it, it punches you. I mean, it does. Yeah. uh, And it gets you really early on. Like I think within, the first 20 minutes of it, you've got this really fraught dinner table. Con- like Initially, it's like a funny conversation between brothers, but turns into this thing. It's like a pissing contest for De Niro just wants Pesci to repeatedly punch him in the face. And that's like the third scene in the movie, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, I mean, a lot of, uh, of Scorsese's films are about how kind of dickish and stupid men are like that's what goodfellas is that's certainly what the irish the irishman is basically three hours and 29 minutes of like how stupid men are and how violent and just like a lot of it is about like the posturing about like you know what are you gonna do there's my woman it's like he he brilliantly captures that and it's just you know jake lamada is you know he's such a a broken person even though he's such a you know, great fighter. It's just that that's all he has though. That's all he's really good at. And he doesn't know how to be a human, how to relate to other people. He's this, you know, beast of a man who, you know, channeled that, you know, miraculously, you know, with his fighting, but he can't be a human being. That's what's the tragedy of the film. Oh yeah. And for my money, it's got maybe the most iconic, just single shot of Scorsese's career. The opening credits of, the boxing ring where Robert De Niro is just sort of bo- uh, bouncing around with an empty, uh, you know, stadium around him in his uh, trademark leopard skin uh, warm-up sort of hoodie, and he's just bouncing around the screen, and you've got this sort of smoke in the background, this really beautiful score behind him, which is like tragic and also somewhat inspiring at the same time. It's just beautiful. It's incredible, and so many of the fighting scenes. It's not it's, like where I think of like the fighter directed by David O. Russell, which really does a good job of shooting the fights as you would watch the fight on something like HBO. Like it uses a sort of like TV tech to make you feel like you're watching a fight. Uh, the fights in <laughs> Raging Bull put you like directly inside of the ring. Like you feel like you are Jake LaMotta where, like, you don't even see the audience. Like, a lot of the times the audience is just, like, these anonymous, like, fighting sailors. It's just, like, you inside of the ring with the guy across from you with Jake LaMotta. And it does just this incredible... You feel the sweat line. Yeah, and there's this amazing scene where he's fighting Sugar Ray Robinson, I think. And he's just, like, letting him beat the shit out of him. And he's just spewing blood. And he's like, you didn't knock me down, Ray. And it's just... It is an amazing scene. It's one of my favorite Robert De Niro scenes. Uh, one of the, the things about it that I don't know if it quite uh, just gets a sense of how at the top Jake LaMotta was. 
because so much of it is like the downsides and the crash is so hard that so little of it is him at his peak that by the end of the movie I've sort of forgotten that he ever had a peak so much of it is just like the downslide but the, the the depiction of that downslide is absolutely incredible like culminating in this amazing scene where he's in a jail cell just punching the walls going like I am not an animal this really is just a movie about like a brute of a human being who almost can't even come to terms with like being a human being and interacting with normal people in a nonviolent way it's a tough movie to watch but it's it is certainly one of the monumental achievements of Scorsese's career. Um, did you do you know what the Paul Schrader uh, also was one of the screenwriters on the script for that? And um, you know what he were what the original scene was in jail? Oh yeah, he was like he was masturbating right instead of punching the walls, which I right, think right. would it yeah. takes it like too low. You're like you almost like at that point you're like this is just a pitiful pitiful. First. It's like the scene in Taxi Driver where the camera goes away from yeah. uh, near, uh, Travis Bickle when he's yeah. talking. It's like even the camera can't watch this. Yeah. But yeah, I, um, I, this is a silly thing, but one of my favorite moments in a comedy. Have you ever seen Waiting for Guffman, the Christopher Guest mm-hmm. film? And they're holding auditions for the um, the play. And they have this old guy come in. He's like, I'm going to do a scene from Raging Bull. You fucked my wife? <laughs> what? You fucked my wife? How do you get the balls to ask you something like that? I'm your brother. And, it just, and then you see Christopher Guest's character just like wide-eyed staring at him. It's so great. He's like, you fucked my wife? Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's like, and Joe Pesci's amazing. He really the, the, is. I was going to say, too, I just listen. yeah, I mean, Joe Pesci's amazing. And like, but um, I just listened to an interview on Leonard Maltin's podcast with James Gray, the director of Ad Astra. Mm-hmm. And he talked about one thing that he, that people forget uh, with Raging Bull is that so much of the movie is actually very quiet. It's like mm-hmm. intimate scenes where De Niro and Pesci and Kathy Moriarty, they're like, there's like almost oh mumbling God. to each other. There are so it's, many it's, scenes of just crazy. him and Kathy Moriarty just like in different rooms in their house, like silent yeah. for like five minutes and him pouring water down his drawers because he can't have sex. That's like, yeah. I think four scenes of the movie are him like pouring ice water onto his I'll do his well, correct. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, I have a family friend who says that he thinks the main thing the film is about is his, you know, his, you know, the fact that he's such a beast of a man, but that he can't perform sexually or that he's, he, he's afraid he might be gay. Mm-hmm. Like he thinks that that's one of the major like things that the film is about. But uh, I also have to say that it's, I, I mean, I would say that this is the best black and white film of, the last 50 years like since like 1970 like since black and white kind of went out i would say this maybe is the best black and white film there aren't a lot i mean just off the top of the head i think of good night and good luck and the artist i'm sure there are more i don't want to expose yes Schindler's Uh, list it's a pretty obvious oversight now that i think about it yeah, but uh, yeah, I mean, I, uh, I I I saw the lighthouse this weekend, and I went with a family friend who's uh, about sixty, and she said that she doesn't think she's ever seen a. That was the first black and white film she had ever seen in a theater in its original release, because wow. there's like nothing these days except arty stuff, yeah. you know, like Francis Hawk, Nebraska. But uh, yeah, anyway, yeah, raging. See it in a theater if you've never seen it. If you ever get a chance, it's a great film to see on the big screen. Oh yeah. Uh, my number two. They see that's one where everybody says it, but it this for me does not feel like a sports movie. 
It's like it's like Taxi Driver. Well, technically. <laughs> it's technically a sports movie, yeah. But yeah, and it's got some really beautiful boxes. Taxi Driver's a great car movie. <laughs> yeah, it's a great car culture movie. It's like American Graffiti. Yeah. My my number two movie, uh, very much another quintessential Martin Scorsese movie. I believe Jonah Hill has stated that this is his favorite work of art. Not only favorite movie, it is his favorite work of art. Uh, my number two is Goodfellas from 1990. Uh, one of the few movies Warren Scorsese wrote, he co-wrote it with Nicholas Pileggi, who also wrote the source material Wise Guys. Uh, Goodfellas, I think I first saw it when I was like 13 or 14. It was a movie I had heard so much about before I saw it. Uh, to the extent that I had seen City of God before I saw this, and the way I like heard about City of God was that it was the Brazilian Goodfellas. So before I had even seen Goodfellas, I was aware of its reputation and you know sort of what it was as a fixture in popular culture. And when I saw it for the first time, I could not have been more blown away. It's like one of those that... Uh, just like when you're a teenager and you see this for the first time, like the violence and all the money and just the filmmaking, it is the fastest two hours and 20 minutes that you will ever spend. And it has not become less entertaining as I've seen it throughout the years, but it has become uh, much more of a nuanced movie for me. I start to take into consideration just what the main characters are doing much more than I did in the past and just Taking in consideration the location also, and just how familiar Martin Scorsese must have been with, like, Queens and that sort of culture and those neighborhoods, and just the authenticity of how those people lived, uh, that for, like, extended periods of times, I have found myself looking up the actual locations of Goodfellas shoots and just looking on Google Maps and being like, oh, so this is where it is. This is a real place where real people live. For me, it is beyond a movie. That's it is where like, someone got <laughs> Exactly. It's like a sociological text. I think Goodfellas is one of the most important movies of the 20th century. It is one of the most important movies of my lifetime. It is the number two Bart Scorsese movie for me. And it's the number one for me. Uh, I, I tell people that it's up there with The Godfather for me as being a film that is legitimately a great work of art and it's incredibly entertaining and watchable. It's one of those movies. I'm not someone that watches movies on TV, you know, unless it's completely uncut and commercial free, but it's one of those where if it's on, it's like, Oh, I, 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 I gotta watch it. It's just, it's so entertaining. It's so funny. It's so vibrant. It's so just full of life. Mm -hmm. Uh, the music choice, it's a, I mean, the, yes. it's just a soundtrack. It is like the ultimate soundtrack movie. It's one that I think literally like anyone who put a pop song in a movie after Goodfellas was thinking of Goodfellas when they put the song in the movie. Like I think more than almost anything, it has had so much influence on the way soundtracks are used in movies. And it is still to this day one of the Especially best soundtracks Tarantino. you ever Yes, I think Tarantino lifted so much of the way he uses music in movies specifically from the way Martin Scorsese does, and most specifically from the way he uses it in this one. Mean Streets, to me, is the other one that really sticks out as, like, a soundtrack Scorsese movie. And then Casino, which I think of as strictly being made to fit in all of the songs that Scorsese couldn't fit on The Goodfellas. <laughs> well, uh, Goodfellas is just one of those movies where 
you ju- you just you go this is what film is made for i mean this is just like, like you you just bask in it it's just so fun and it but it's also deep and profound but it never is heavy and that you're thinking oh this is an important work of art it's just it, it's almost deceptive and how that you it's such a great work of art but it's when so you're fun. watching it it just wafts over you and you just become yeah. another spectator in what's happening you become a part of this world and you're drawn into it in a way that very few movies draw you into the world of the movie it's one I remember uh, my professor from the Scorsese class I had in college talked about how when he first saw the movie, him and a friend of his went to an Italian restaurant afterwards because they just wanted to feel like they were living in the world of Goodfellas for another few <laughs> hours after they left the theater. Yeah, I I mean, I can't. I, I, I understand in a way, you know, not everyone wants to see a violent you know, mafia movie with a bunch of profanity in it. But I kind of don't understand how anyone can't love this movie. Like, like there's something wrong with you if you don't love Goodfellas. Uh, so, yeah, it's I mean, th- th- that is definitely one. It, Raging Bull and Goodfellas are ones that he should have won Best Director for. Like, I'm not 100 percent sure what, everything else that came out those years. But I can't imagine that your Goodfellas came out that, you know, what 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 did actually win? I think what it was, was Dances um, with Wolves. Was it Dances with Wolves? Yeah, I shouldn't judge because I haven't actually seen that movie, but uh, I can't imagine that it's anywhere near as good. It's pretty good. It's it's super different. It's one one that is much more nostalgic and less uh, in your face about, you know, being complicit with murderers while you're enjoying this movie. Dances with Wolves doesn't bring that sort of psychological introspection when you're watching it. But I think more than anything, Goodfellas is like a perfect... Like, if you were to just say who is martin scorsese as a director you would show someone goodfellas with the just incredible variation of filmmaking techniques especially even in like the first 20 minutes where you get uh uh, still photographs of important events with narration over it and just really interesting cuts and really cool uh use of soundtrack orchestrated beautifully to action on the screen one thing you think of is like a quintessential scorsese movement is when they do the piano coda of layla to a quick sort of series of uh different uh aftermath of murders committed by one of the main characters in just such a such a perfect scorsese kind of way that even if you were to just show one that three minute clip it would give such a great idea of who Martin Scorsese is as a director that more than anything, I think Goodfellas is like the perfect example of who Martin Scorsese is as a filmmaker. And let's just throw out a, a um, you know, point out his longtime editor, Thelma Schumacher, who has done brilliant work for nearly all of his movies. And I mean, I would tell people the best way to start with Scorsese is to watch Mean Streets, but Goodfellas is also a great one to start with. Um, yeah, it's, and Joe Pesci won the Oscar for best supporting actor. And he's just so, yeah, I, I just feel like I'm gushing. Like, oh, it's so good. It's so good. But it is so good. No, it's what um, you were, I so, mean, yeah, if you I, weren't gushing about it, you would be being insincere. You'd be like being stuck up and removed like, you know, film professor. If you aren't gushing about Goodfellas, you don't love movies. It's like that kind of thing. Yeah. Where gushing about it isn't like, you know, we're praising Scorsese as this all-knowing, uh, you know, master artist who is irreproachable and can do no wrong. 
it's just that Goodfellas is just that good, like that you have to gush about it. And if you yeah. don't, you're being insincere and you're being a contrarian. And I don't believe you if you say you don't like this movie. <laughs> right. And, uh, yeah, it, it, it's like I was saying, it, it, it's so entertaining. You almost are like, well, I mean, it's not as good as Raging Bull or Taxi, but I think it is. I think it's his best film that I've seen of his. But uh, So are you down to your number one? I I'm down to my number one. I can guess that anyone uh, can guess out of my previous comments in this episode that my number one is Taxi Driver from 1976. Uh, a movie that has is much more in your face and is much harder to like and much harder to watch than Goodfellas. Goodfellas is a movie that can just be on. You can flip to it and start watching it. Taxi Driver is not that way at all. It is a very disturbing movie. It is a movie that at times you don't feel comfortable watching it. You feel like you're getting a peek into something you're not supposed to see. Like this is someone's life that is just completely unraveling. And you're like, oh, maybe I don't want to watch this. Maybe this is something I shouldn't be watching. But in, but that is precisely is why it's such an important film and why it's so important to watch. Because it is, it is experiences where I think even normal people sometimes feel like Travis Bickle, Travis Bickle, where you feel alienated and like you can't communicate with people, and that you know everything's going wrong for you. But <laughs> it's a lot of ways a warning sign that you know for as as bad and as uh, antisocialized you think you are, you're at least you're not this person. But it also, in many ways, is like you could be this person if you made the wrong decisions and you allowed the self-pity to overcome you and this narcissism to overcome you. So in a lot of ways, I think it's a much more nuanced and considerate movie than something like Joker, which a lot of people have been saying praises violence. One could never say the taxi driver praises violence. And you could never, after watching this movie, feel like committing murders is something that leads to self-actualization or anything positive it is very much a detailed in-your-face depiction of a lonely 20-something white person descending into absolute madness but it is also an entertaining movie and it also has some really funny parts to it i think specifically of albert brooks's campaign worker has some real moments of levity that don't distract from the message of the movie, but just further emphasize the moments of violence and just tragedy that come up throughout it. And there's just so many great parts of this movie. It is an incredible Robert De Niro performance, a really excellent screenplay by Paul Schrader, who I know very much experienced the feelings and emotions Travis Bickle did when he was undergoing the screenwriting process. I think he ended up actually even driving cabs around Los Angeles while he was writing the movie. So for him, definitely these are like experiences and emotions that he very much felt. And I would be hard pressed to feel like Scorsese didn't feel the same way at times, uh, you know, in his younger days, like well, Travis Paul Schrader said, well, Paul Schrader said he wrote the script so that he didn't become Travis Bickle. He said that there were times where he was driving around with an ulcer and a loaded gun, <laughs> you know. So it's I'm glad that Paul Schrader wrote, you know, put that into a script instead of becoming. And, you know, one of the big changes that they made when they actually shot the film is that in the original script, he only kills African-Americans. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah. Paul Schrader had some, some stuff he needs to work out on his own, but. In in this working out of his own mess of psychology, he also, I think, tapped into a lot of 
just feelings of just any sort of person that sometimes they feel like Travis Bickle. Maybe I'm revealing more about myself than I would like. But <laughs> Taxi Driver is a really, really, really good movie. It is such an important movie in terms of 20th century filmmaking. It's one that I saw for the first time when I was maybe 15. And I was kept from having a Netflix home DVD account for the next six months, I think, because I had this movie without my parents' permission. And my mom was so disturbed that I watched this that she didn't want me watching movies of my own for another six months afterward. But it was a movie that I just, like, couldn't, you know, just was so struck by the first time I saw it and have kept coming back to so often. And it is such a great metatextual movie, even beyond the character of Travis Bickle and Taxi Driver in itself. In a lot of ways, it's a remake of The Searchers, which is also one of my favorite movies. Uh, I mean, there's so many different ways you can go into Taxi Driver. It's also a film noir. Uh, there's just so much stuff you could say about Jody Taxi Jodie Foster is great. You don't mention her. Well, I know because I'm just going out about so much stuff about it. This is probably like maybe you are the only person who's actually following what I'm saying, who's listening to this episode. But yeah, I just Taxi Driver. I love it. It is for me unassailable Martin Scorsese's best movie. It is the perfect synthesis of director, actor, screenwriter. And this, for me, is one of the movies that exists outside of all-tour cinema. I know you could argue that this is obviously a Scorsese movie. It's obviously a De Niro movie. It's obviously a Paul Schrader movie. But those, count it, those are three different authors. That is not one author. That's why I think it is a perfect collaboration between three filmmaking uh three real titans of the industry and it is just a perfect work of art it has so much to say even in 2019 43 years after it was released and i think this maybe is, even more so sad i think this is a movie that will forever be fresh and relevant i don't think taxi driver is gonna end up being like citizen kane where ever anyone who watches it is like this is a boring movie that has nothing to say even though i think citizens kane is is more than that Taxi Driver, I don't think it's going to age. Taxi Driver, I think. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I would definitely <laughs> say, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think it's... Taxi Driver, for me, is perfect. It's, for me, a top ten movie of all time. Uh, you've already said Here's your piece about it. Is it... <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's almost hard for... Like, I can't add any more to what other people have said. Here's a question. Favorite films of the 70s. You like it more than the two Godfather films. Where I would do. It rank in the I do like it more than the two Godfather movies. It's right there for me with. Oh man, it's even hard. Network is obviously on that sort of category, but aside from that, Taxi Driver just stands so alone that even the Godfather movies, like, how can someone relate to the people on the Godfather? Like they're mobsters. Oh no 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 I, no 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 I think that the characters in the godfather are i know that, that i mean that, feel for that's what makes it so powerful. that's probably putting it too simplistically and that's doing the apples and oranges comparison things where by praising one i don't mean to make the lesser one but travis fickle's like the godfather's oranges obviously yeah but like the, it's just such an iconic character he's up there with like the the guy in uh like uh, up there with like works of dostoevsky and stuff like that it transcends cinema travis fickle's like one of the all-time characteristics uh, characters of like fiction uh just beyond even like michael corleone i don't know i'm definitely rambling now godfather part two network taxi driver for me those are the three best movies of the 70s and taxi driver uh 
far exceeds all of them. Yeah. Well, um, well, can I critique your top five for a second? Yes. I can't believe you think the Aviator and the Departed are better than Raging Bull. Well, that's like, that's that, that that is why I said favorite and not best when we first started doing this. I caught myself saying best because I do think Raging Bull is a top five best Scorsese movie, but I just don't like watching it the same way I like watching The Departed and The Aviator. It's a, I think the last time I watched yeah. it was like 2013. I watched it on my computer, and every time I watch it, I watch it the whole way through because it is just so good and it's so riveting, but I just don't want to start it. I don't want to start Raging Bull <laughs> because every time I watch it, it takes so much out of you. Yeah, it's such a tragic film, yeah. Well, uh, I, I, I would, I mean, I don't know. It's and also, your, movies, your choice of I Last just... Temptation was inspired. Last Temptation is one of his best movies, no doubt. It is certainly one of his more complex and personal movies. That and Silence are obviously his most religious movies. And, I mean, to understand Scorsese I'm... as a as a filmmaker and as a person, you need to think of him. His, his tr- other chosen career was to be a priest. He wanted to be a priest when he was younger. And Christianity, and specifically... Italian Catholicism it might be like the most influential outside of his like family impact on his life is Catholicism and the church. So it would be difficult to understand Scorsese as a filmmaker without uh, looking at Last Temptation of Christ. And it is a really incredible movie. Right. Can I just recommend something that not uh, enough people have seen? Um, I think one of the better things he's done is his segment of New York stories. Mm-hmm. It's certainly the best of the three, the one called Life Lessons with Patricia Arquette and Nick Nolte. I think that's very underrated. Um, the Woody Allen segment's funny, and then the Francis Ford Coppola one is like, ugh, what happened there? <laughs> but um, it's definitely a mixed bag of an anthology film, but uh, I think that's one of his uh, underrated things that not enough people have seen. And uh, I mean, the reason why we're doing the top five is because what are the dates? This Irishman comes out in limited release on November 1st, I yeah. think. And at the end of the month, it comes on Netflix, right? Yes. Yeah. Like yeah. the 27th or something. It will come out in theaters, so, yeah, uh, the beginning of next month. And will be on Netflix, I believe, the Wednesday before Thanksgiving. Yeah. So, uh, the, I mean, Irishman probably would be my number six, but it's hard to say. Uh, you know, with this early on, but mm-hmm. oh my, it's so good! It's so good. I yeah, mean, it's just I like mean, I really can't I mean, wait. It's a thing. It's one of those things too, where you're talking about like the laundromat is like perfect for Netflix, and it's a weird thing of that, like the Irishman, like Roma last year. It is, you know, it is cinema. It mm-hmm. is. There's no denying that this is a film, but the fact that it's three hours and twenty nine minutes, like. How many people are actually going to sit and watch the whole film yeah. in one sitting? Yeah, it's definitely going to be you one. You will, right? Like, I, I most so, certainly I, will, and I'm going to try and coerce as much as my family to watch it with me uh, that Wednesday before Thanksgiving. But I'm sure most people will watch it between three and six different sittings. Maybe even like throughout a single day, but they'll just like you know go back to it every once in a while, which is a shame that that's how most people will. Nobody it. should watch. Well, nobody should watch it in more than two. I mean, there's no excuse for you. You can't sit for, you know, uh, uh, an hour and 45 minutes. Like, come on. It's, yeah, it's, it's, it is a complete work. It's not an anthology thing or, yeah. And I, I mean, I don't want to start reviewing the Irishman, but 
it is similar definitely in ways to Mean Streets and Goodfellas and Casino and The Wolf of Wall Street. But I think the best part of the film is the last third. And I think that is like, yeah, it, it, it's one of those movies where, do you, do you ever see a movie by that, that you're so excited for and like for the first like hour, I mean, this movie is really long, but like for the first section of the movie, you're like, this is good, but like, When's it going to be amazing? And then you get to the last one. Like, oh wait, it is amazing. Like, like, and then you think back at the first part, and you're like, you know, like, yeah, the whole movie is amazing. It's, it's like sometimes movies don't wow you right away, and you're like, you know, no, this is very good, but like, I'm, this, it's like I'm worried that it's not amazing instantly. You know, but Irishman is, I think, the last third is the best aspect of it. It's a lot slower and more uh, thoughtful and reflexive. Uh, no, in a lot of ways, that's how I felt so, yeah. about the the Terrence Malick movie I saw today. But we will wait to dive deeper into that until Jonathan has seen it, which you know I can't can't wait till we can talk about that. But just to go back, our top five Martin Scorsese movies. My number five, The Departed. My number four, The Age of Innocence. Number three, The Aviator. Number two, Goodfellas. And number one, Unassailable, best movie of the 1970s, maybe the best movie of the 20th century, Taxi Driver. Yeah, and my better top five list is uh, number five, The Last Temptation of Christ, four, Taxi Driver, three, The King of Comedy, two, Raging Bull, and without question for me, number one is Goodfellas. So thank you for listening. Uh, We'll be back with you all with probably Parasite and The Lighthouse, potentially Jojo Rabbit. But thank you for listening, and we'll be back with y'all. I slipped up a little bit. Be back with y'all next time. Thank you for listening.